Thank you, Linda. Good morning, church family. My name is Andrew, one of the pastors here. I was here last Sunday when my friend Jordan preached. How many of you were? Okay, so I know that you guys can amen, at least like three of you can, and I, I know I don't have the same passion and enthusiasm that Jordan does. Well, I don't show it as much as he does, right? I have it, but I don't show it. And so I want to invite you throughout the sermon, throughout when we sing, even during announcements. I wanted to amen a couple times while Linda was doing announcements. Like, you can give a little feedback and, and talk back to us. This is a communal experience for us to engage with the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the creator of the heavens and the earth together. Amen? Amen. amen. Thank you. I'm going to talk at you, but I can, I, you can give me a little talk back. That'd be good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to gather. Lord, you are present. May we not forget that. More, Lord, may this not be some dry, stale talk of some ancient book. But Lord, may it be a living and active engagement in intimate interaction with you, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the, the Christ who is risen and is ruling and is reigning and whose Holy Spirit is indwelling us and, and whose word is, as it says about itself, living and active, not dead and dusty, but living and active. And so, Lord, this morning as we gather, we acknowledge your presence, we're desperate for your presence. I pray that we, you would remind us that we have your presence, and in your presence there are pleasures forevermore and fullness of joy. We love you, Jesus. Have your way in us. For your glory, our good, and the advancement of your gospel, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in her book, Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, Rosaria Butterfield tells this incredible story of how hospitality transformed her life and converted her into becoming a follower of Jesus. Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert by Rosaria Butterfield. She tells the story of how she was a tenured professor at Syracuse University, and she was an openly gay and open lesbian feminist professor at Syracuse who was on a mission, in her own words, on a mission to tear down the church and to, she was actually doing research and study to write a book on why the religious right hates people with her lifestyle so much. And, and so this is her objective, and Promise Keepers had just come to her university. Promise Keepers, for those of you who aren't familiar, it was like a movement of men coming together to try and encourage one another in their faith in the 90s, and they had just rented the, the, the gymnasium at Syracuse University for one of their events, and Rosaria at the time, Champagne, was angry about it. Why is my university allowing this group of patriarchy, white evangelical men to come and, and spew their hate and their bigotry here at my campus. And so she wrote a letter in the paper about this. And at a local church, somebody picked up this, this letter that she had written, and they brought it to the pastor, and they said, Pastor, what are we going to do about this lady? we gotta, we got to shut her up. She's telling lies. And the pastor said, I'm going to invite her to my house for dinner. And so the pastor and his wife invited Rosaria to their house for dinner, and this began a two-year relationship of them having dinner weekly. And, and Rosaria says that it was very interesting. At first she thought, this is amazing that a pastor just opened up his home to me so that I could do research right on the ground as I write my book about why he's a bigot and why he's full of hatred for me and my community. And in the process of her experiencing fellowship, food over his table with him, talking about life and being honest with her struggles and honest with her questions and her doubts, she became a follower of Jesus. 
she gave her life to Jesus because this pastor's home was open to her and welcomed her questions, welcomed her pushback, welcomed her argumentation. And just in a respectful way, they, they created this environment where hospitality led her to place her faith in Jesus Christ. Hospitality created gospel unity, which led to gospel transformation. This fall, as we look at different disciples in the scriptures, we're trying to figure out what does it look like and what does it really mean for us to follow Jesus? And we're 2,000 years removed from when Jesus physically walked among us. And so we want to look back to those who walked with Jesus and near Jesus in the first century and figure out what did it look like for them to be disciples or apprentices of Jesus and what can we learn from their lives? And so today we're going to look at Lydia in Acts chapter 16. And our big idea for this morning is that practicing biblical hospitality creates diverse community around the gospel of Jesus Christ. And isn't this what we all want? Like we long for diversity. Our, our culture longs for diversity and it longs for unity and community, Park Community Church, anytime you see the word community, it's common unity, community. It's, it's people who have been unified around something. And what we're going to see this morning and one of the characteristics of a disciple of Jesus or an apprentice of Jesus, if you are a disciple of Jesus, or if you're considering becoming a disciple of Jesus, placing your faith in him and following him, one of the things that you need to know if you're considering it, and one of the things that we need to be reminded of if we've already made this decision, is that part of our practice as followers of Jesus is to practice biblical hospitality. And it's in the practice of hospitality that diverse communities are created around the common bond of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so that's what we're going to see this morning as we look at Acts chapter 16. So flip over to Acts chapter 16, flip open to it. It's on page 925 in the Pew Bible. I'm going to ask you to stand as I read our text for today. Acts 16 verses 11 through 15. Speaking about Paul and his missionary companions on their missionary journeys. Picking it up in verse 11. It says, So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia in a Roman colony. We remained in the city some days, and on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and we spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Lord, would this word inspire in us biblical hospitality, gospel hospitality, the type of hospitality that creates unity in the midst of, of diversity, the type of hospitality that our world is hungry and desperate for. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may have a seat. 
as we look at this text, there's three things that I want to consider as we talk about this idea of biblical hospitality this morning. The first is Lydia's context, kind of what is the context here for this passage? So we just jumped into it kind of out of nowhere, right, into Acts 16. We've been kind of all over the New Testament this fall. Generally, we like to preach through books of the Bible, but this fall we really wanted to trace the disciples and see what we can learn from them. So we need to spend a little bit of time talking about the context around Lydia, who she is, what's happening here in this text. And I want to consider Lydia's conversion, what happened in her life transformation, her giving her life to the Lord Jesus Christ, and then Lydia's commitment to open up her home and her life to Paul and his missionary friends. So for the first one, Lydia's context. Lydia was a wealthy businesswoman searching for meaning. So you'll notice here in this text, Paul and his missionary buddies, they're traveling around, they're, they're spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the preceding passage, they actually wanted to go to Asia, Asia Minor, this region on the east side of the Mediterranean Sea. Um, Look at verse 6 with me so we get a little more context here. Acts 16, verse 6, it says, And they went through the region of Figra and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. God closed the door for them to proclaim the gospel in Asia. Right? Sometimes when your plans fail, it's because God wants your plans to fail. He has a different thing in mind. He's saying, no, don't, don't go this way. Don't go that route. Just trust me. Follow me. And so Paul, he wanted to go to Asia, but God shut the door. The Holy Spirit said, do not go there. Verse 7, and when they had come up to Mystra, and they attempted to go in. I didn't pre-read this. This is dangerous with all these words. Attempted to go in. Hey, I'm your pastor. And I know oftentimes people feel a disconnect from the pastor, right? Like, I don't know theology. I don't even know how to pronounce these words. So when you're in your community group and your community group leader asks you to read out loud and you're like, I don't know how to pronounce these, it's fine. Just make it up. (laughs) Bithynia. But the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Look at that. God's closing a door, redirecting. So passing by Mystra, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Okay, God said, not Asia, not now. What I want you to do is go to Macedonia. There's some people who are ripe and ready to hear the gospel message in Macedonia. So they set sail, pick it up again in verse 11. To Troas, they made their direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the, in the district of Macedonia in a Roman colony. So it's this, this influential city in this Roman colony. Rome is the world power right now. They, they have control over all the trade, all, over all the commerce. I mean, the, the, Rome just rules the world. And so it's kind of like Paul and his missionary buddies are showing up like in New York or Beijing or one of these influential cities that creates culture and determines kind of the, the culture of the world and the culture of their surrounding cities and countries and nations. And so they show up in Philippi and they remain in the city for some days, verse 13. And on Sabbath, we went outside to the gate by the riverside. In most of these towns, there would have been a synagogue set up for Jews to practice their religion. Um, Rome, when they would conquer a people or conquer a nation, they would allow other religions to, they were kind of pluralistic, so they would allow other religions to practice their worship. But for whatever reason, here in Philippi, there wasn't a synagogue. 
historically it took about 10, 10 leaders, 10 Jewish leaders to establish a synagogue. And so it's very likely that in the city of Philippi, there wasn't even a critical mass of Jewish believers, of Jewish men and women who followed Yahweh. They couldn't get a synagogue built. And so Paul, typically when he would go to a city, he would go to the synagogue and he would start reasoning with the Jews. He would try and reason with the Jews and convince the Jews that Jesus is the promised Messiah. That all of your Old Testament points to Jesus. He didn't find a synagogue. There wasn't a synagogue there. And so verse 13 tells us, And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we suppose there was a place of prayer. So in the lack of the synagogue, there's probably at least a few. There's a small remnant of believers who we can find. And we suppose that they're praying somewhere outside the city gates for their own safety, for their own, so that we wouldn't be disturbed. Because in this Roman colony, without even a critical mass of a, enough Jews to establish a synagogue, their religion is very oppressed in Philippi. And so we're going to fi go find these people that are kind of underground Jewish worshipers. And we're going to tell them about Jesus, the Messiah. So we suppose there's a place of prayer. I'm in verse 13. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. So they go out. They find this group of women who are encouraging one another spiritually. They're seeking God. They're seeking Yahweh. They're trying to honor the Sabbath in secret or removed from the public eye. Verse 14. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who is a worshiper of God. So what we know about Lydia is that she's a seller of purple goods. This means she was likely a very successful and wealthy businesswoman. The, the purple dyes came from the city of Thyatira. They were very expensive. To be a seller of purple meant you were doing well in your job. You had some kind of social status. You had some economic upward mobility. She likely had a second home in Philippi. One in Thyatira where she's from. That's kind of the center where she got her dyes from and where she ran her business. And then she had a trading home in Philippi where she would go and trade these purple dies and make money and do commerce but she was a a god fear tells us that she's from Thyatira they're in Philippi she's a seller of purple goods a wealthy businesswoman likely two homes two different trading posts and she's a worshiper of god Lydia is a gentile a non-jew who had adopted some jewish practice and custom she was spiritually hungry. She was searching for meaning. She, she thought that the Old Testament practice, that the, the Jewish worship of Yahweh had something to offer her hungry soul. Right? Everybody is on a spiritual journey. Some people answer their spiritual journey with atheism, some with agnosticism, some with other world religions, some with Christianity, some with kind of a mashup of all the different things. Everybody is on a, a spiritual journey Everybody is searching for the meaning of life. Why are we here? How did I get here? What's the point of my life? What happens after I die? Those who are rich, those who are poor. From all different cultures, all different languages, all different tongues and tribes and nations, everybody's searching for meaning in life. Lydia was searching for meaning in life. She found some meaning in the Jewish practice of the Old Testament. And so she's there with these women studying, encouraging one another, learning, and Paul finds them, and he goes, and what does he do? He proclaims the gospel. 
We know this because that's what verse 10 told us. And when, look at verse 10 again. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia. By the way, Philippi is in the region of Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. That's Paul's mission. That's Paul's life call. I'm going to go and proclaim the gospel, the good news of Jesus to people who are searching, people who are looking, people who are trying to make sense of life and answer life. And so he goes into Philippi. He finds this group of women. Lydia, it tells us, that she was listening because the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And so this is the second observation that I want to make is the miracle of illumination and regeneration. Look at what happens here. Lydia is, is spiritually hungry. She's spiritually searching, searching. And verse 14 in the middle of it says, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. We don't know exactly what Paul said. We don't know how he declared the gospel. We don't know if he used a tract or the spiritual four spiritual laws or some other gimmicky system right? We don't know. He probably didn't. I'm not saying that you shouldn't ever use those type of things, but Paul, his heart was to go and to proclaim freedom in Jesus. Jesus, this Messiah who came to, to set captives free, to loosen the bonds of oppression of sin and government and world systems and worldviews. Jesus who came saying, I came to give you life and to give it to you abundantly. I came to give you eternal life. Yes, then and there when I return or call you home, but also here and now. I, I came to give you this new birth to, to help you be born again. This is Paul's driving motivation for him going to these different cities is to proclaim freedom in Jesus. And so that's what he's doing there with this group of women. He's proclaiming the gospel. And how many times have we proclaimed the gospel in word and deed and it fell on deaf ears? Or how many times have you failed to proclaim the gospel in word or deed because you weren't sure that you could package it right so that people would respond. Usually that, that's why we, as followers of Jesus, were hesitant. And, and sometimes I, I think the Holy Spirit, actually, he'll shut the door, right? He'll say, maybe, maybe not right now in this moment, in this conversation, in this setting, in this context. Maybe this person isn't ripe and ready. Notice the work that God has done before here. He, he says, Paul, not into... Asia right now. By the way, Thyatira, where Lydia is from, is in Asia. So Lydia, as she's converted in Philippi, she can go back into Asia where God had shut the door and share the gospel with her natural friends and relationships and community of influence. Isn't that crazy? God cares about people who needs, need salvation in Jesus Christ. And so here's the key. God opens Lydia's heart Verse 14 in the middle, that word heart in the Bible, it's not the way that we think about heart, like the, the organ in the left side of your chest. Some of us grew up with kind of a gimmicky Christianity where it's like, God's knocking at your heart. You got to open up the door so that he can come and live at it. And we kind of think about this like, like in reality, like God, how does God live in my heart? Is he knocking on the door to my heart? And no, heart means the whole being of your, your spiritual being, your soul, your heart, your mind, your body. That's what heart means biblically. So when it says that God opened 
Lydia's heart to pay attention. It's that all of a sudden there was this illumination that happened. Her mind was able to grasp what Paul was telling her. That Jesus is the fulfillment of all of that Old Testament religion that you have been learning about. Lydia, you're a Gentile who's, who's seeking Yahweh, who's practicing Jewish things. It says right here that she's a worshiper of God. You're, you're a worshiper. We're all worshipers of something. Lydia, good job worshiping Yahweh. Good job seeking Yahweh. Good job trying to find your purpose and meaning in life through Yahweh and his people. Now let me give you the full picture. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And all of a sudden, God opens her heart, her head, her heart, her soul to pay attention to what was said by Paul. If God ain't in it, there's no reason to you waste your time doing it. And so know that, church, as you feel sometimes, like, pressured to go do evangelism, sometimes God hasn't prepared the way, and you don't need to waste your time where God hasn't prepared the way. But God has prepared a lot of ways for each one of us. Sometimes he'll tell us in a dream, hey, talk to this person. Sometimes it's, it's this internal impression. Hey, listen to this person in this moment. They're, they're, they're broken and they're hurting and they're asking questions or they're, they're lamenting something. Listen, don't speak, listen. Other times they'll say, go speak, go proclaim, go tell truth, go ask good questions. Meet with this person. But what we have to keep in mind is that it's a miracle, conversion, becoming a follower of Jesus, becoming a disciple or apprentice of Jesus is a miracle of illumination where God, through the work of the Holy Spirit, opens up our mind and our heart to pay attention to the words of the gospel and then to have a regenerated life, to, to convert into becoming a follower of Jesus. And it has nothing to do with your eloquence, your, your like gospel presentation, or your apologetic persuasion, or your theological precision. Keep that in mind. Sometimes churches do such a bad job of this, and pastors do a really bad job of this, of making the average church person, the, the average Jesus follower, feel like they're not equipped to, to share the gospel. It has nothing to do with your gospel persuasion or your apologetic precision or your theological perfection. It has to do with God opening a heart and a mind, a willing servant who's willing to sit with somebody, who's willing to fumble their way through the gospel. There's no way you're going to pretty up the message about like God created all things and, and then he put a man and a woman in a garden and then a snake rolled along and he snake tempted them to eat a piece of fruit off of a tree and then because of that, all of this mess has happened, right? You can't make that sound great. You can't make the message of the gospel sound so elegant that people are like, well, that makes all the sense in the world. I'm going to place my faith in that guy and follow him. No, it's the work of God. He has to illuminate. He has to open up the hearts and the minds and the soul of the person that you're with. But this context is created by being in relationship, by listening to God, following his lead, knowing where he's opening doors and where he's, he's kind of tilled the soil so that the seed could be planted. And so this is a miracle. Lydia is transformed. She becomes a worshiper of Jesus. This is an amazing thing, church family. Don't forget where you came from. If you're a follower of Jesus, don't forget why you decided to follow Jesus. It wasn't because of lofty arguments or incredible reasoning. It was probably because somebody in the 
loving kindness of their home modeled for you, Jesus, and talked to you about Jesus, and God supernaturally illuminated his word, and he regenerated your heart. It has nothing to do with your religiosity or somebody else's religiosity or persuasive arguments, right? God did something supernatural in you. And so as we look to be disciples who make more disciples, we need to pray that God would work this miracle of illumination and regeneration over and over and over again. Now, third, Lydia's commitment. So it tells us that, that Lydia, that God opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And then verse 15, after she was baptized and her household as well. So she's converted, she, she receives the gospel, she responds to the gospel by being baptized, making a public identification with Jesus. I am now a follower of the way. I am a Gentile who was practicing Jewish religion, now I'm a follower of the way. I'm counted among Jesus' disciples. I'm one of Jesus' followers. This, this radical commitment that she makes, and then upon doing that, says, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come my house and stay and she prevailed upon us i love that that means that she persuaded us she urged us it's like that 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 person who just won't stop inviting you like you've got to come you've got to come you've got to come come to my house for dinner come to my house and stay i can't wait to be with you i can't wait to see you and so lydia's commitment here is this biblical hospitality that produces gospel unity Upon receiving the gospel, hearing the gospel, having the gospel transform her in such a way where she and her entire household are baptized, she says, come and stay in my home. Paul and your missionary crew, as you're in Philippi seeking to make more disciples of Jesus, you need a ministry base. You don't have one. There's no synagogue. There's few believers here. Lydia is one of the first converts in Philippi. She's not even a native to Philippi. She's a native to Thyatira, but she has a home in Philippi, and she opens up her home. She opens up her life for Paul and his missionary crew to come and stay in her home, and her home becomes a base for their ministry, becomes the home church in Philippi. And if you read the gospel, or the, the letter to the church in Philippi, this was an amazing church. The book of Philippians is one of the books that, Paul's write, that Paul writes that has like the fewest corrections and mostly just encouragement. And it starts because God had prepped the soul in Lydia's life. Lydia responded to the gospel and she opened up her home, which became a base for their ministry and a hub for gospel unity among incredible diversity. This church was incredibly diverse. I, I don't have time to walk through all of this, but I want you to notice in Acts 16.1 that Timothy, okay, Paul also came to Debri and to Lystria. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. Timothy is one of Paul's missionary companions who's here in Philippi, and so you have, you have a mixed race, a, a Greek and a Jewish new Christian, right? He's, he's the, the product of an interracial relationship. You have Paul, a Pharisee of Pharisees, a pure-blood Jew, one of the most prided like Jewish descendants until he realized it's all rubbish. It doesn't matter where I come from or who I came from or my ethnicity, my lineage, the nation. like None of that matters. And so you got Paul and Timothy together. And then you get Lydia, this wealthy businesswoman 
running in totally different circles. And then next what happens is Paul and Silas get thrown into prison. And in prison, they convert a Roman jailer who worked for the Roman guard, whose job was to persecute Christians. And now all of a sudden, this man joins the team. This man joins the church. You have a government militant man in the home of Lydia, a rich seller of purple, with Paul and with Timothy. And then you also have this demon-possessed slave girl in Philippi who becomes a follower of Jesus. She had been trafficked. She had been abused. She was being used by the powers that be. And she's possessed with demons. And Paul shares the gospel with her and prays for her. And she is, she's cleaned of her demon possession and she joins the team. Can you imagine the diversity in this team? Paul, a former Pharisee, now Christian apostle. Timothy, half Jew, half Gentile, newer Christian. Lydia, this Gentile who had adopted Jewish tradition and worship and was now replacing that to become a follower of Jesus the way. This demon-possessed slave girl and a Roman jailer all in the same church, small group. What kind of conflict do you think that would bring about? Potentially. If they weren't focused on Jesus. If they weren't saying, Jesus is our common bond. Jesus is why we're here. Jesus is why you have a Roman government official and a demon-possessed slave girl. Now saying, let's worship Jesus together. He's the great unifier. Not their affinity for things in life. Jesus brings them together. Not their homogeny, not the color of their skin, not their preferred cultures, not their preferred political ideologies. Nothing but Jesus brought this family together. And it happened because Paul went faithfully to proclaim the gospel and Lydia opened up her home to create this safe place that this church could learn to live life together because barriers are broken down when you sit in somebody's home, when you open up somebody's life, when you open up your apartment, when you open up your front yard or your backyard, when you open up your dining room, when you, when you just stand in the church lobby and you have a conversation with somebody who may otherwise drive you nuts. When we are hospitable people, Jesus breaks down walls of division and he unites us around Jesus, the Son of God, who is crucified for our sin, was raised for our sin, and overcame sin and death in the grave, and gave us life. And so you and I can do life together, because Jesus died for the brethren and for the sisters. He died for the sons and daughters of God, to make us brothers and sisters of one another, to go out into the world as neighbors and witnesses. And so, church family, I want to just encourage you, keep opening your homes. Keep opening your lives to people who don't think like you. To people who, and some of you need to keep doing it. Some of you should start doing it. To people who don't think like you, people who don't act like you, people who don't respond to the, the things in the world the same way that you respond to. Keep opening your home because biblical hospitality is what creates gospel unity. And, and, and I want to encourage you just for a moment. It's really cool to hate on the church right now among certain circles of like evangelicals. I don't know why it's become cool to rip on the bride of Christ, but he takes it pretty seriously. So be careful. There's, there's some real hurt and pain that the church has done. So for those of you wrestling through hurt and pain from the church, I'm so sorry. I want to create a safe place for you to process that and 
feel from that, but, but, but those of you that are just hating on the church for the sake of hating on the church because it's kind of cool to hate on the church, be careful. It's the bride of Christ, and he's jealous for it. And, and one of the reasons why I'm a pastor and why I love the church is because I have seen the church practice this hospitality of Lydia to open up their homes and their lives and their buildings for radical gospel unity among diversity. And maybe this is just my story and my testimony. Maybe it's unique to me and maybe it hasn't been your experience. But I remember growing up, I grew up in Grand Marais. Well, I moved up to Grand Marais, Minnesota in sixth grade. Small little town. And we had a lot of foreign workers who would come in the summers to help the businesses. There's a big tourist industry in Grand Marais and the surrounding area. And so in order to support the like uptick in tourism in the summer, a lot of the businesses would have foreign workers come in for the summer. And, and my observation was that a lot of my non-Christian friends and coworkers and people would talk about like sleeping with the foreign workers and using them for their own pleasure and advantage. Meanwhile, my evangelical church, just so you know, evangelical means gospel, the good news. It's not a political thing. My evangelical church was opening up its church building to host international dinners to build relationships with these workers. And people in our church were opening up their homes to do real community dinners in their living rooms. That's the bride of Christ. It's a beautiful thing. So many people in our church, I, I, I could go through right now and I could point out so many of you and say, it's amazing how you opened up your home in this situation, in that situation, how you, how you intentionally sought out these people or how you intentionally cared about this or how when you were broken, you went to their house and they opened up their home for you or how you stayed on their couch in the middle of your problems. Thank you, church, for being the gospel of Jesus Christ in a divided world. Keep it up. Keep running in that direction. Keep practicing biblical hospitality because it's through biblical hospitality that gospel unity will flourish. We want a more diverse church in many different ways. That's going to happen when we open up our homes. The, the same type of diversity that you have in your homes, in your lives, in your friend groups, and where you work is going to be the same type of diversity that this church has. We can't do it on a Sunday morning. It, it, it's a result of us believing that the gospel has called us to sit with people and to have conversations with people and to listen to people and to care for people and to break bread with people. In fact, why do you think this was happening here in Philippi? Lydia received the gospel. She opened up her home. Why do you think this is happening? Because a culture had already been set among the church. Look at Acts chapter 2 with me as we wind down this morning. Acts chapter 2. Look at the culture that the early church had set, which was the culture that Paul brought into Philippi and the culture that Lydia adopted when she opened up her home to this diverse group of people. Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47. This is after the day of Pentecost. Jesus has ascended back into heaven and now the first church is at work developing. It says, And they had devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, opening up the Bible, reading it, preaching it, studying it, and to fellowship, feeding one another's lives, opening up our lives to one another, and to the breaking of bread, communion, but around a real meal. What we have on Sunday mornings is just a little taste. It's to make you hungry to get into each other's homes and each other's lives. To the breaking of bread and to prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. 
And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing to the proceeds the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with a glad and generous heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This culture of hospitality that Lydia adopted in Acts 16 was, was present here in Acts chapter 2. And it came from Jesus instituting the Lord's Supper. I mean, it came from his ministry and his modeling what it looked like to follow him, right? But let's flip over to Luke chapter 22 as we transition from studying God's word to observing the Lord's Supper. Let's look at what Jesus says about this unique meal. This is one of the one of the reasons that we do communion weekly at Park Community Church is to practice hospitality. To be reminded that we gather around Jesus and that these elements, the bread and the wine, are what unite us. We're united around a man who was crucified, who resurrected, and who has now given us new life. And a man who told us that as often as we're together, do this in remembrance of him. Look at Luke 22, starting at verse 14. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover meal with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Those words, when the church gathers, we do this in remembrance of him. We gather around a meal, and I know this is a cheap imitation meal in the little cup in front of you, but it's to remind us that this is a communal thing, that, that the bread and the wine represent Jesus' body broken for us, his blood shed for us, and we're in this together, and this is what unifies us, a man, Jesus Christ. And he, he says, this is, this is what we do on Sunday morning is just a small element of what it means to be a part of the church. We're part of this community where we gather and we're eager, like Jesus was, to eat a meal with fellow brothers and sisters. And so you notice he, he drinks a cup and then he breaks the bread. And then look at verse 20. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, and likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying... This cup is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. What I love about the Luke account is that he shows us, oh, there's two cups. They had a cup of wine before the bread. They had a cup of wine after the bread. And in fact, in Jewish tradition, they would have four cups of wine throughout the night. So if you've ever had a problem with alcohol, I'm not encouraging this. But I am encouraging you to notice that this was so much more communal and, and extended then we make it here on our Sunday morning gathering. And so as you gather this week with friends for your Friendsgivings or family for your Thanksgivings, make that a time of communal celebration. And I know you don't all have family and friends who you can talk about Jesus with or Jesus may not, you know, dominate the conversation, but you go as an ambassador of Jesus into those places and break bread and drink wine with those people, trusting that as you do, Jesus is there working He's tilling the soil. He's planting the seed. He's creating unity among diversity for his glory. For our good, the good that 
of those that we do life with and for the advancement of his gospel. Amen? I'm going to pray. The band's going to come back up and, and lead a song. And I want you to sit where you're at and just reflect on the words of the song and take communion when you are led and ready, remembering who Jesus is and what he's done, receiving his invitation into this diverse family that's united around him. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you. Thank you for your forgiveness, for the times that we're judgmental, for the times that we're inhospitable, for the times that we just are focused on our own little lives. Lord, you, you forgive us for all that. And Lord, you've invited us into a deeper, richer, more meaningful life. You've invited us to, to grow in our embrace of diversity and seeking it out in gospel unity all around you, Jesus, the perfect man who lived a perfect life and died a sinner's death and overcame sin and death and the grave so that we could have new life and imitate you. So, Lord, as we take this feast, I pray that you would remind us of the great feast which is yet to come where there will be many people at a banquet table, the marriage supper of the Lamb, people from all tribes, tongues, languages, colors, backgrounds, political persuasions, having fellowship with Jesus present. Lord, may this little foreshadow of that nurture us to pursue you. In Jesus' name.